On her new album, Chime, Minneapolis-based hip-hop artist Dessa navigates neuroscience to help her understand how love has played such a compelling role in her life and her music. This is That Conversation. I've been Wendy, living with the Lost Boys, you spent as a deckhand on the convoy, moves every night to prove we were something, got confused if it was from a two that we were running. I've seen Gibraltar, I've seen the Taj Mahal, Soweto, Aya Sophia, Chef and paints the walls blue. I've played to full rooms, I've played the full two, burning through the bottoms of a pair of new boots. With several releases yeah. under your belt, Every time you enter into a new project, how much of your audience do you have in mind as you're starting to write and scratch out these songs? Mm. I mean, to the best of my ability, you try to focus on the music, come up with some aesthetic ideas that are exciting, and try to keep the door closed about worrying you know, what, what the critical response will be. That's tough. I don't do it well, but I try to, because I figure there's time for that later. You know, There's time to be editorial, and there's time to worry about critical reviews, but... It's hard enough to to try to find and say a true thing and render it well. Like that, that's a task that demands your full attention, and and I don't think it's helpful to worry about what people will think of it when you're in the throes of the creative process. You can't be too broke to break. As a woman, always something left to take. So you shouldn't try to stay too late or talk to strangers. Look too long, go too far out of range. Cause angels can't watch everybody all the time. Stay close, hems low, safe inside. That formula works if you can live it. But it works by putting half the world off limits. You have the chorus and fire drills, or a line, shall I say, where you say, and I, I've, I thought this was like so compelling, but also sad. Uh, in a good way, in a good way, because I'm like, damn, how does it feel to have to live like this? You you oh. seeing that formula works if you can live it, but it works by putting half the world off limits. So unpack that for me. Yeah. You know, I um, I mentioned in that song that I do a lot of traveling, and I, I do some of that for work you know, on, on a musical tour. And I do I travel a lot alone as well. Clear my head and to see what human life is like when it's not lived in the city that I grew up in. And... Um, in the backs of a lot of travel books, there's an italicized section or header about advice for women who are traveling alone. And it's so unusual when you really think about it to imagine that women traveling alone have to learn a different way, right, than the rest of the book, right? Here's all the things to see. Here's all the good food to eat. And here's how you should do it if you're a woman traveling alone, right? Uh, here are the streets that you shouldn't go on. Here's the care that you should take to um, not attract unwanted sexual attention. Here's the well-lit streets and here's the dark ones. Um, here's advice about the bars where people are bugged or the trains where people are robbed. Like, I think that I'm, I'm like living as a Western woman. Like, I'm one of the freest women in the world. And it's still, when you really take an audit, it's staggering to count the minutes of your life that you spend making sure something bad doesn't happen to you which is very different than making sure that something good does goes gospel gossip slander harvest hunger rain dance hand to god i didn't think it was contagious eve leaving eaten in a makeshift dress with a bell to tell us when we're hungry there's a bell to tell us when we're tired a bell that tells us to rise and fight a bell to rise and die it's just so bells sometimes i'll ring myself you mentioned 
I'm the freest woman in the world. I feel like you've done so many of these interviews, you know how to set us up for like the next question. So on Velodrome, you also talk about you believing that your will isn't quite free. Now, I've done the research and I understand where you're coming from with that. But talk about what it means to come to the realization where you are able to say that coming from a place where at one point you might have believed that, yeah, we we do have free will. Mm. You know, I I studied philosophy in college. And so the question about whether or not humans are fully free agents, you know, whether we are really at the helm of our own decisions or not, is the kind of question that gets tossed around a lot in an undergraduate degree. And it's pretty tough to argue for totally free will, although it certainly feels like we have it. You know, it feels like I'm choosing to say all these words and it feels like you're choosing to deliver each question. But there are a lot of things that feel one way and exist in a totally the other way. So, like, it feels like the sun rises and the sun sets. But we know from Kepler that that's not true, right? There's the Earth that's spinning just to create that impression. And similarly, I think with with some of our behavior is like so guided by biological forces that we just don't feel that invisible hand moving us. Like you know, when we look at birds of paradise, you know, and we see them doing these like really um, involved mating displays and dances and stuff, and we go, "Wow, look at how look at how they're programmed to do that." And then we look at dogs, and we say, look at how they're programmed to mate season heat. And then we don't ever look at ourselves and say, look at how we blink our eyes and turn sideways to showcase our figures and touch each other's shoulders. We, we imagine that all of that is, is holy and completely willful. I think that we just can't feel our instincts at work. You know, there's no, there's no alarm that goes off to tell you this is your biological drive at play. I was uh, reading up on this album and certainly some of the things that informed you to write it. And one of the things that I was not surprised to learn was how much research you did uh, on neuroscience and certainly neurofeedback. So what made you believe that what you were dealing with with love and its inability to let go of you or you to let go of it was was distinctly different from like how the rest of us might experience it? Wow, I've never formulated the question the way that you just did. Like I'd always thought of it as me not being able to let go. But that idea of it not letting go of me, huh, it makes it feel like it's not my fault. I like that formulation better. <laughs> anyway, um, I just, everybody goes through breakups, or almost all of us, and um, they suck, and eventually you get over it, you get better. And I was, I'd been in love with a dude for a really long time, and we just weren't working. And it was years, and just years and years. When I looked to my left and I looked to my right at my peers, I just didn't see people who were fixated for this long, you know, like a few months or a year or even two to get over somebody. That's that's within the first standard deviation of the mean, I would guess. But I didn't understand why I couldn't get over it. Um, what I felt, I feel capable in other parts of my life, right? Like, I'll go out and figure out how to do a tour. I'm going to write a book. I can do these professionally ambitious things. How come I cannot handle this, <laughs> like, at all? And so I'd seen a TED Talk uh, late at night. I was drinking white wine in my own apartment <laughs> by, uh, by a woman named Dr. Helen Fisher. And um, she put people in fMRI machines to try to find the parts of their brain that were active when they were in romantic love. 
And that idea was very novel to me. I hadn't actually imagined that there would be a particular coordinate in your brain that would be associated with that feeling, you know. And she she had some compelling research that suggested that, in fact, there were these really distinct spots, including the anterior cingulate and the ventral tegmental area and the caudate, these spots that would reliably light up when you thought about someone you were in love with romantically. And these were different spots that would light up when you thought about, like, your mom who you loved or a friend who you loved. This was, like, romantic love. And I thought, dude, if I could find where the romantic love is in my brain, then I could take it out. <laughs> so I designed, a, like, a science project to explore that idea. You know, and so I tweeted, like, hey, is there, are there any neuroscientists who might want to exchange access to an fMRI lab for whiskey and backstage passes to a rap show? <laughs> and I found somebody. <laughs> so, yeah, I went in and I got to see the love in my brain and spun me out, man, you know, to see my own cortex in cross-section and a little dot of red where the activity indicated that I was in love. I was just the same. And then, and then I tried to change the way that that part of my brain was behaving. I tried to chill it out so that it wasn't being so hyperactive and so kind of vigilant all the time. Um, it was it was in the red, you know, as far as like activity levels at rest. So have you felt any solace in mm -hmm. finding the visual representation of what you have been feeling emotionally? Um, it was actually after doing the visual, you know, after seeing it, I mean, we did try to intervene. So I worked with a neurofeedback technician, excuse me, clinician, and she connected 22 electrodes to my head. And we did a series of sessions where we tried to train my brain to be more flexible and to stop being constantly active in those emotional regions to see if it would change the way that I felt about this guy, you know, mm -hmm. so to like give my, the, the way that we, she described it was like, it's not like, it's not like you're lobotomizing yourself, you know, or zapping like a part of your brain to, it's not like Botox where you can't move your eyebrows anymore. <laughs> Instead, it's like free weights, lifting free weights, so that you're trying to build your muscles and train them to be more strong and flexible and resilient. So we're trying to teach my brain to operate more adaptively. You know, so that it should it should light up and, and fire when I'm in love in a viable romance. But eventually when I'm not, it should chill out. You know, eventually, like, it should chill out. You can't stay cramped or flexed indefinitely. You're supposed to relax at some time. Um, but it did help. It did it did ease, like, take the edge off some of that compulsion. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're up there after all. I keep your diamond ring on my necklace. I don't keep much close to my chest. Lastly, one of the songs I think that was um, really awesome to hear, but really hard for me to listen to because I've I've had some some exceptional loss in my life was I hope I'm wrong. And what's interesting about this song to me is from the conversations we've had, it seems like you do have this openness to what you've learned and what you believe is true based on facts and empirical data and then what you learn based on experience and and hopefulness and uh i hope i'm wrong i feel like ties those two things together because on one side i don't know if you're an atheist or maybe you don't believe in heaven or an afterlife but it sounds like in this song you're in contention and hoping that that's true because you do want to see the folks that you've lost happy and in a place of utopia and maybe at some point meet them again. Yeah. It's, it's dead on. I mean, I'm, I am an atheist. 
And when you lose somebody, right, you think, man, it would be great to be wrong on that point. <laughs> I hope you're someplace wonderful. I don't think you are, but man, I hope you are. <laughs> String of beads to me, rosary to you. Does this really make you change your ideas on it for selfish reasons, or do you stand? Mm. Do you stay in your stance and just chalk it up yeah. to this is life? Yeah, I mean, again, I have my position. I think it's all the everything I've learned so far um, so reinforces, to be honest, that position on atheism. I think that's how the world works. But if I could decide which points to be incorrect on, that would be a good one. You know, it'd be lovely if the world were differently arranged. I don't think it is, but I hope I hope it might be. I know I should feel lucky, but I'm just feeling spent. Last thing you said was you'd be watching out for me, and we both know that I don't believe that to be true. String of beads to me, rosary to you. Dessa, thank you very much for making time, and congratulations. This is by far the best collection of music that you've written, which is saying a lot, considering I think I've said this to you like every album. Man, thanks, It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Shout out, welcome.